Father, I just pray that you would uh, be with us today and that you would grant favor to us. Lord, I pray for all the fathers in this room today, some who may feel defeated, uh, some who may feel distant, and uh, some who may be naive. Lord, I pray, God, that you would encourage our hearts. Lord, I encourage those, Father, who don't have children but have determined and decided to be dads to other people, decided to be moms to other people. Lord, I pray that today you would encourage their hearts. And so, Lord, we just want to lift this time up to you and invite you to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to look at the book of Esther today. and I know you're very familiar with that story, most of you, and you would say that's kind of an odd Father's Day message. The book of Esther. Isn't that about a little Jewish girl who grows up to become queen? And yes, it is. Uh, but we want to talk about it. I think there's some neat principles we can glean here. <clears throat> it reminds me, uh, Father's Day reminds me of that story about the, the little boys who wanted a pet. And their father and their mother said, okay, I'm going to give it, I'm going to get you a pet, but if you don't take care of it, then I'm, we're going to send it back. We're not going to keep it. So we're not going to get a dog. We're not going to cat. So they went into the pet store and uh, they decided they'd get a hamster. And, and she, the mother said, now look, I want to tell you once again, if you don't take care of this, you are not going to keep it. You've got to clean the cage. You've got to water it. You've got to feed it. You've got to be the one that takes care of it. If not, we're going to send him back. So they, they were so excited. So let's name him Danny. Okay, this is Danny. Danny the hamster. So the first few days it was fine, but within a week, you know, it started. Have you cleaned? Have you cleaned the cage? Have you watered Danny? Have you given given him any food? And you know, each week just kind of over and over. Finally, after a couple of months, the mom found another home for Danny, and um, she brought the boys in. She said, "Boys, I've got some bad news for you. There's going to be a change. Someone's going to be moving out of our house, and Danny's going to have to. He's going to have to go. And you knew this when we got." Uh, you knew this when uh, we made this commitment, and so here's the deal. Um, I found another home for him. And the boys were taking it surprisingly well. And one of the boys said, well, he's sure been around here a long time. We sure will miss him. I said, yeah, I, I know. Well, another little boy said, well, maybe if he just didn't make so much mess and just leave things such a mess all the time, if he could clean up after himself, maybe we could could keep him. And mom said, no, I've made my decision. Now go get the cage. We're, we're taking Danny uh, next door. Danny? And the boy started to cry. We thought you said daddy. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this is not one of those uh, beat your dad up sermons. I just think that's a great story, though. I let us know right where we are sometimes. Um, we're not going to go over this, but I just thought this was a great list that I have for you. One of them I just compiled from a uh, hundred different places uh, in some of my own thoughts, 25 ways to be a good dad. And then on the back is a list that Tony Dungy puts out. And so I, I would just invite you as fathers to look over that. It's just a little card that I'm going to keep, and uh, I just thought I'd share that with you. And those are just good principles for us to remember, not good principles for us to know. You know, my father, uh, he made a lot of mistakes in life, and and by no means was perfect. But one of the things that he really taught uh, my my brothers and, uh, and, and me as well was to uh, look out for people who uh, could not take care of themselves very well. 
People who had kind of been left behind. People who'd kind of been left out. So I remember there was a guy named Elmo that lived down the street from us. I mean, his name really was Elmo. And he probably had about a third or fourth grade education. And he had about the mind of a third or fourth grader. And he was always walking everywhere. And, and dad would always pick him up. And, and on his birthday and on Christmas, my dad would always get food for him or bring him over. There was another guy named Cecil McDonald uh, who maybe had a second grade mentality. And I would come to church. My dad would make sure he was at church. And my dad would make sure he always had a meal after church. And uh, my dad would go look after him. And he would invite him to lunch with our family if we, we went out. And uh, my dad was just always looking out for folks like that. There were certain widows in our church. Uh, there were a couple of single moms who had lost their husbands. And my dad would have the kids come over. And uh, he would take them out to ride horses. And he was always looking out for people uh, who were kind of on the outside. Uh, to this day, uh, they live next to a military base that he still works with, a, a military post. And uh, incoming soldiers, particularly enlisted men, boys who were 17 and 18, 19 years old, wouldn't know anybody. Uh, my dad would invite them, come on over to our house, let's go have lunch. And uh, sometimes my mom would say, you want to give me some warning on this? And uh, But he was really, really good about that. And today, I, I think uh, that's one of the reasons that I'm a pastor. My brother does pastoral care. Uh, um, my other brother's a lawyer. I'm not sure what happened there, but um, but nevertheless, I, I'm thankful for that example. There was a there was a quote. I don't know where it originated, but uh, it was one that was indicative of my father. And it goes like this. You can tell a lot about a man or a woman by the way that they treat the people who can do nothing for. Them. How do you treat the people who can't help you, who can do nothing for you? That's a really a picture of who we are. Well, there's a guy in the Bible here. His name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is actually a single guy. It doesn't appear that he was married or have any children. But he decided, he made a conscious decision to be a dad. Because the Bible tells us that Hadassah, or Esther as we call her, had no mother or father. Her parents had died and Mordecai was a cousin. And he decided to be a dad for her. So this morning, it's not about if we've had biologically, if we've had children. We can make a decision to be a dad. We can biologically have children and decide not to be a father. As Stephen Covey says, one of the most important things you can do as a father is on your way home from work, decide to be a dad that day. And certainly that's what Mordecai does. And because Mordecai does it, I believe there's six principles that Esther gleans from Mordecai, the one individual who really poured in to her life. The first one is support. She learned the importance of good support. Ray talked about how many uh, children are growing up today without a father's support and, and just the ramifications of that. Uh, matter of fact, we now know psychologists say that there need to be about seven or eight uh, adults that speak into your life, that have influence, positive influence in your life. And so it's important that we have support even outside of our own family setting for our children. And number two, submission. We, we will see that Esther learned uh, the characteristic of submission, honor and sacrifice, of prayer and supplication and being shrewd and wise. We see these characteristics in the story of Esther. Let me just read a few verses and then I want to tell the story. I want to start chapter one and I just want to read a few verses and then we'll tell this story. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. And you can just listen to this. And Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, reaching from or stretching from India to Cush, 
127 provinces. These are the Chaldeans, okay? And they have overthrown the Babylonian Empire. This is about 500 years before the time of Christ. And what they've done is they've basically uh, conquered uh, much of the known world in that area. They are the predominant military power. So Xerxes is the man, or Xerxes is the man, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And he has full authority. And during this time, for whatever reason, he has chosen to be sympathetic toward the Jews and he's allowed them to go home. The Babylonians had taken them into captivity about 70 years before and had, had marched almost all of them out of the Jerusalem area and brought them here into the Persian, into the Persian area, uh, into the Babylonian Empire. And uh, now through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and others, many have gone home, but some have stayed. And Mordecai is one of those who has chosen to stay. Well, you know the story. Here's what happens. Xerxes uh, has this 180-day party, and probably uh, many scholars think because they had invaded Greece and it looked like uh, Greece would be completely conquered, and it was the really the last threat to them. Uh, they'd already conquered the Babylonians, and now they were conquering Greece. And so they have this big 180-day party, and then they s- decide to top it off with another seven-day party, a seven-day celebration. Well, during this seven-day celebration, you can imagine what it was like. I mean, they were probably so drunk and messed up at this point that they didn't know, have any good sense. Well, Xerxes decided, you know what? I'd like for the queen to come on in here to my party here, which was probably all men, and I'd like to show her off. And I'm sure it was for her intellect. And so... It was requested that she come, and her name was Vashti. And Vashti said, I ain't going in there with all those drunk guys. I'm not doing it. Well, because they were in such a good mental state, they decided, first of all, he was just um, humiliated. And he begins to listen to some of these guys, and they start to say, you know what, you can't put up with that. I mean, you know, the queen can't respect the king. I mean, who can? I mean, this is going to be bad news for all of us as men. I mean, women are here about this. They'll just kind of take over the place. This is not good. you got to do something about it. So basically, they convince him to divorce her and to put her away. So that's what he does. He divorces her and puts her away. Then we go to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, the Bible says that uh, apparently he sobered up. And then he remembered, I miss her. I wish I hadn't done that. But it's too late. He's banned her according to the law of the Medes and the Persian, which incidentally came uh, during this reign. The law of the Medes and Persian was an irrevocable law. It could not even be re- uh, revoked by the king. And so now he is without a queen. So these same bright guys say, I tell you, here's what we do. Let's have a beauty contest. Let's get about a 100 uh, hot-looking women and let's uh, teach them to be my fair lady. And uh, then we'll, have, we'll parade them out and you can select one. Well, it's during this time that Esther kind of comes on the scene. Hadassah. Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles in Esther chapter 2, beginning with verse 7, the Bible says that Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, which means dazzling beauty in Persian, and who who he brought up, and she had neither father or mother, and this girl was known as Esther and was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter, and and when her father and her mother had died, and then this edict was given by the king. This edict was given by the king for all these women to come together, and Esther was one of them. And Esther had learned, uh, and she had gleaned the support of Mordecai. She had a good self-esteem, and she not only gleaned the support, but she submitted to him. And so, here we see in chapter 2, when she gets to the courts, there is a head eunuch. His name is Haggai. 
And not the Haggai that we have in the Bible, but Haggai. And Haggai is the chief eunuch. And he's been doing this for a long time. And he gives advice. And Esther follows it. And he finds favor, or she finds favor with him. So she does what he says. And he helps her to be centered and to be placed in the best position possible. And you know the story. King Xerxes chooses her. Now, how did that happen? First of all, because of the support she had. Number two, because she had learned to submit to authority. Where do you think she learned that from? She learned that from a guy who decided to be her father, Mordecai. The third principle I think we learn that she gleaned, and we can learn from this story, is one of honor. We see later on at the end of this chapter, in chapter 2, that Mordecai, who must have worked somewhere on the outskirts of the, the king's palace, the gates, he had some uh, position at the king's gate, not a high-level position, but some kind of position. And he overhears that there's two guys that want to assassinate the king. He overhears them talking, or he catches wind of it. And so he goes to Esther, and he gives the word, and they are exposed, and then uh, they, are dis- they are disposed of. And it's because of Mordecai. But when this is found out, and Esther gives this information, you know what she does? She gives all the credit, the Bible says at the end of chapter 2, to who? To Mordecai. She had learned the principle of honor. She could have just said nothing and it would have been, it would have made her look better. Nobody really, uh, the king really didn't know who Mordecai was. And, but she gives the credit to him and it's recorded what Mordecai has done. Will they continue? And there's a bad man in this story. The bad guy, the villain, and his name is Haman. And Haman, a lot of the records seem to indicate to us that he's an Amalekite. And the Amalekites have had a long-standing feud with Jews forever. And uh, and now we see in this particular instance when Haman, who was second in command, we're not sure how he got there, when he would uh, when he would ride through town, everyone else would bow down to him, just like as if he were the king, except for Mordecai. Whenever he would come up to the gates uh, of the castle or uh, of the palace, Mordecai would just stand there. He would never bow. He would never pay honor and homage uh, to um, Haman. And it made Haman mad. And Haman knew he was a Jew, and it made him even angrier because of his prejudice toward Jews. And so, here's what happens. He determines in his mind as he talks to the family, I want to think of a way to kill him. And matter of fact, he not only comes up with a way to kill him, he comes up with an idea how he can just get rid of all Jews, how he can see the Jewish people exterminated. So he plots up this thought and he gets before the king because he's second in command. He, you know, he's drinking with him. They're having a party. And he goes, you know, there's a group of people, king, who are causing a lot of problems. I'm really, I'm really concerned about a revolt and about their dishonor and disrespect for our kingdom. And I just think they're going to call grave problems in the future. I think it's important that we deal with this. And the king, trusting Haman, says, go and deal with it. Do whatever you must. And he issues the command according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so this occurs, and Mordecai gets wind of it. And it won't be just those Jews there, but nationally everywhere. All the people groups will have free reign to begin to kill and to begin to exterminate. Basically, uh, an ancient day holocaust will be allowed to transpire to get rid of all the Jewish people. And that would have appealed to some of these people groups because they then would have been able to take their wealth and their houses and their lands and anything they wanted. And it would have been free and clear and completely legal. Well, when Mordecai hears of this, he goes to his daughter, uh, Esther, and he says, look, this is what's happening. 
you're going to have to go and stand before the king and, 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 and this, uh, on behalf of the Jewish people and ask him to relent. And Esther says, I can't go because he's not called for me in 30 days. And if it's not a specific place where I'm supposed to be and meet him, I can't just show up without permission, without a request. I have to be requested. If I go and I show up, then, then I can be disposed of. I can be killed. And it's interesting what Mordecai says to Esther, his daughter, his only daughter. He says, do not think that because you are queen, that this fate will not become upon you as well. For if you do not do this, then someone else will rise to the occasion. But who knows that you have been placed here for such a time as this? This is why you've been placed here. Now, actually, what's interesting in, in the book of Esther, you don't see the name of God mentioned. But you see the sovereignty. You see the spirit of God. You see the providence of God all throughout the book. So Esther decides, OK, I will do it. She's willing to sacrifice her life, if that's what it means, for the good of her people, because she has an uncle who's taught her support, submission, honor and sacrifice. So, in fact, she begins to devise a plan. And before she does that, the Bible tells us in chapter four that she calls upon Mordecai and all the, all the Jews to begin to uh, fast, the Bible says. And fasting, pretty much in every situation we find in Scripture, prayers accompanied by fasting. So they begin to fast and make supplication before the Lord in order that this may go well. And so the other thing that he's taught her certainly is prayer, but shrewdness and wisdom. She begins to devise a plan now. And she begins to think and she begins to pray. God begins to work with her wisdom. The first thing that happens is as she goes... The king sees her and she's so dolled up. She looks so nice. She smells so good. He says, come on in. And he goes, God, what would you like? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. That was just an expression that they often used. And so she came in and um, she said, well, I just want to spend more time with you. Matter of fact, I would like to uh, have dinner with you and with Haman tomorrow night. And then I'll, I'll share with you what I would love for you to do. Well, that night, God's at work. The people have been praying and been fasting. And that night, Haman, the bad guy, can't sleep. So he has uh, gallows built for Mordecai. And he's going to have him hung the next day. He can't wait. But there's someone else that can't sleep in the providence of God. And it's the king. The king can't sleep that night. And so because he can't sleep, he orders the, the annals of, of all the things that have occurred in the last few years that have been written down to be brought to him. And he begins to read through those. And he notices just a few years before that something had occurred, that there had been an assassination attempt on his life. And someone had exposed that attempt. And he asked one of his servants, he said, what happened for that guy, this man Mordecai? How did we reward him? They said, nothing was ever done. Just so happened to be that night. The providence of God he said, well, something needs to be done. So the next day, Haman comes to the court. Haman's feeling pretty good because he's excited about what's going to happen. How the one person who's not making him feel good about himself, not stroking his ego, is going to be taken care of. And not only that, all of his people. And Haman comes in full of himself and he says, and the king says, Haman, I'm glad you're here. I've got a question for you. What should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? A man 
that the king wants to show special attention to in special things. And Haman thinks, must be me. I'm the number two guy. I hang out with the king more than anybody else. I tell you what you do, king. Here's what you do. Put put your royal robe upon that man. And then allow your chariots and your horses to ride through the city and say, this is how the king honors men who he desires to honor. This is what you should do for him. He said, that's great. Go get Mordecai and do that for him. You're in charge. Oh, Haman was so angry. He must have been so mad and he's so humiliated as he does does all those things that he had intended for himself for Mordecai. But he thinks, but I got it because it's been signed into law. Well, that night, there's the dinner. Haman's there thinking, you know, I'm not only a friend of the king, but even the queen wants me to be here. And so he comes to the dinner and now the king asks, Esther, Hadassah. What is it that I can do for you? Oh, king, something terrible has happened. Something terrible is happening. I and my people are going to be exterminated. Someone has created a law and has created a set of events and has manipulated the circumstance and manipulated you to where I'm going to be disposed of and all my people. And I beg of you not to let this happen. And the king rose to his feet. Who would do such a thing? And she points at Haman. The king is so infuriated, he doesn't know what to do. He leaves the room. And while he's gone, Haman gets on his hands and knees. He begins to beg and he begins to claw at her and grab her dress. And just as he's grabbing her dress and pulling on her, the king walks in and he said, Will you attack my wife? He's so angry, he looks out the window and he sees the gallows that were meant for Mordecai. And he sends Haman out to be hung. There on the very gallows in which he intended to hang Mordecai. He then issues a decree at the wisdom of Queen Esther and says, If you would, king, send out notice. Because it's coming up here in just a day or two that all Jews should be allowed to defend themselves. That they should prepare themselves. That they should receive weapons. And they should build fortresses. They should organize themselves. For the day is coming soon that the edict will transpire to exterminate the Jews. I know it cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed. But will you issue that edict that they can defend themselves? And what is about to occur? Would you help them that process of defense. And so the king grants that request. And you know the story. The Jews are able to defend themselves and ward off their oppressors. And now that day is known as pure. That all started with a man named Mordecai who taught the lessons of support, submission, honor, prayer and supplication, sacrifice, and shrewdness. Yesterday, as I stood here and preached, I shared that story with you earlier about everyone who had been impacted by Nita Miller's life to stand. And I thought about, you know what? That's the kind of impact I want to make. I want to teach my children the principles of Scripture and the principles of life to where one day, when I die, they can stand and give honor and praise to God Almighty. Because I have taught them well and because through their lives and through my lives, people have been impacted for the kingdom of God.
Let me ask you this question. What legacy are you leaving today? What principles and truths are you making sure that your children know? You may be saying, I'm single. You know what? Mordecai was a single guy, and he decided to be a dad. Every Sunday, you know this, we have children that come to this church who don't have parents. You can decide to be a mother. You can decide to be a dad. You can decide to be one of those supports. What legacy are you leaving? What impact are you making? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. And thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity to know you and to allow uh, us the privilege of being used by you to make impact in the lives of our children, in the lives of children who are not our children, and in the lives of others. I pray, Lord, that we would ask that question, what impact are we making? And for us as dads, are we deciding to be a dad daily? Have we made the conscious decision not to just show up, but to be actively a part of our children's life? To be teaching them the principles of Scripture. To be teaching them uh, the important characteristics of honor and sacrifice, of service, of submission, of shrewdness. Lord, I pray that we would not be found lazy and self-centered, but that we would give our lives away for your kingdom's sake as we give it to children, as we give it to others, as we give it for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.